Our scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Samuel and picks up in the middle of a story that may be familiar to many of us, the story of David and Goliath. At this point in the story, the giant Goliath, the head of the Philistine army, has been taunting the Israelites across a large valley. And the boy, David, shows up to bring his brothers who are fighting in the Israelite army some food and sees the giant and volunteers to fight him. That's where we pick up the story with David speaking to King Saul. Hear now 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 32 through 49. David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, the Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor and he tried in vain to walk for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I'll give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. 
David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Is there anything more satisfying than a story where the underdog triumphs? One of my favorites is depicted in the movie Hoosiers, which tells the true story of the high school basketball team in rural Indiana that improbably made it to the state championship. In one scene, the players enter the arena where they will play the championship game, and they are instantly dismayed at the size of it. They are used to playing in front of a couple hundred people. This stadium seats thousands. It feels enormous to them. So their coach gets out a tape measure and has them measure the distance from the foul line to the basket and then from the basket to the floor. And it turns out that this court that feels so huge has the exact same dimensions as all the standard courts they've practiced and played and won on before. The story of David and Goliath served a similar purpose as that tape measure for the first people who wrote it down. These scribes were trying to help those who would read it make sense of a senseless situation. Those who first recorded the stories of King David, including this story of David and Goliath, did so in the 6th century BCE when the Israelites had been taken into exile, driven from their land, their homes destroyed. These stories were written for a community in total despair, a people trying to figure out how in the world things had gone so wrong what the future could possibly hold, and where God was in these terrible events. In answer to all these questions, the scribes describe a captivating scene. The giant Goliath threatens to make mincemeat of the Israelites and take them as the Philistines' slaves. Well, the Israelites have been there, done that, They know all about a life of slavery, and they are eager to avoid returning to it. But they're also terrified because they know there's no Israelite who can go up against Goliath. There's not even anybody who's willing to try. So they wait, doing nothing, trying not to antagonize the enemy. It's like they think if they just hold very, very still, barely breathe, Maybe, just maybe, Goliath and his army will give up and go away. King Saul and his army can only imagine two options. Send someone to battle Goliath, which means they'll end up enslaved to the Philistines, or do nothing and hope the Philistine army and their awful giant will get bored and leave them alone. Needless to say, morale is low. They are paralyzed by fear. Enter David. David is the baby of his family, and he's been sent to take provisions to his older brothers who are soldiers. He comes on the scene and witnesses the terror that overcomes the Israelites when Goliath taunts them from the other side of the valley. 
But as a newcomer, David brings a new perspective. He still remembers the thing these well-armed soldiers have forgotten. They are the people of the living God, soldiers in the army of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God who rained down plagues on Pharaoh and parted the sea so the Israelites could cross on dry land while Pharaoh's army drowned behind them. David refuses to let Goliath and his size and strength and threats define him or his people. He sizes up the scene with his innate curiosity and with an imagination dominated by God. For the Israelite army, Goliath and the fear he invokes in them has become the very center of their universe, the most important thing in their lives. They can do nothing but watch and listen to every move he makes and every word he utters. Their fear shuts out everything else, but it especially shuts down their curiosity about this strange giant and their ability to imagine an outcome other than defeat. But David shows them a different way. From time to time, we all let the Goliaths in our lives take over. We all have things we fear, illness, addiction, loneliness, failure, financial ruin, or some secret we're sure we cannot share. And fear is the antidote to curiosity. Fear shuts down curiosity and our capacity to imagine a future beyond the challenges of today. Not only that, but our fears have a way of overwhelming our ability to remember and sense God's love and God's presence. The story of David and Goliath answers an existential question, a question every individual, community, nation, and yes, every church faces at one time or another. What do we do when fear overshadows curiosity? What do we do when it looks like the promises we were made, or even promises we ourselves made, might not be kept? What do we do when we feel threatened by outside forces, and when it feels like everything we hold dear is falling apart? Well, what David did when he came face to face with Goliath, was remember what he already knew deep down in his soul, that God is faithful and present, that God equips us with what we need for the task at hand. David remembers God, and in a situation that looked utterly hopeless, David got curious about what God could do. The Baptist preacher and civil rights activist Will Campbell was once invited to participate in a debate on capital punishment. At the last minute, he discovered his opponent was an erudite scholar. 
after his opponent delivered a lengthy philosophical argument in favor of the death penalty, Campbell got up to deliver the case against it. He had prepared no long or intellectual remarks, so after a long pause, he said, slowly and deliberately, I just think it's tacky. Then he sat down. The audience laughed. Tacky? The moderator asked. Yes, sir, Campbell said. I just think it's tacky. Now, come on, Will, the moderator said. Tacky is an old southern word. It means uncouth, ugly, lack of class. I know what it means, Campbell replied. And if a thing is ugly, well, ugly means there's no beauty there. And if there's no beauty in it, there's no truth in it. And if there's no truth in it, there's no good in it. Not for the victim of the crime, certainly not for the one being executed, not for the executioner, the jury, the judge, the state, for no one. And we were enjoined by a well-known Jewish prophet to love them all. When faced with our fears, it's easy to let them take over, to let fear define us. When that happens, we need to remember the most basic thing about whose and whose, who we are and whose we are. We are the beloved children of the living God whose claim for us and whose love for us is stronger and deeper than any fear that threatens to overwhelm us. As we wrestle with how God is calling us to be the church in this place, at this time, in the midst of profound change in our culture, in our community, change in the way we do church, we need to take a page from David's playbook. When he stands across the valley from a terrible giant, he remembers God's faithfulness, and with curiosity and a God-dominated imagination, he does what he does best. He trusts his practiced aim with a slingshot and a stone and defeats the giant no one thought could be defeated. If it feels like the giants in your life or in our life together are of a bigger scale entirely than a mere giant of a man, remember this is just the beginning of David's story and of Israel's experience with kings. As David gets older, he will face other challenges that are at least as big as this giant, and they will not be dispensed with so easily. When it becomes clear that David is next in line for the throne, Saul will pursue him in a murderous rage. David will live like a fugitive just to stay alive. His best friend will be killed. His wife will be taken away and given to another man. When he finally is king, David will abuse his power in the worst possible ways, committing adultery and then murdering one of his loyal soldiers to cover it up. His infant son will die. He will deal with terrible conflict and tragedy in his own family as his grown children scheme and plot to violate one another and their father. Near the end of his life, David will face a coup from his own son, Absalom, who will then be killed by David's own men. 
So in the face of this story, where David makes it look so easy to bring down a giant, we need to remember that David's life, while full of triumph and achievement, will not in the end be defined by his successes. He will show himself to be utterly human, terribly flawed, and defined by his desperate need for God, for God's guidance and grace, for God's promises and God's love, just like each one of us. Which is why those who wrote down David's story from a place of exile made sure that this story, the one where the shepherd boy takes down a mighty giant, comes right at the beginning. Because David will not be the underdog for long. There will come a day when David will forget that what defines him is his relationship to God. There will come a day when David's curiosity and imagination become eclipsed by fear and lust and greed and doubt. But perhaps because this childhood story of taking down a giant persists in his memory and in ours, David, even in his most unsavory moments, shows us what is most important, that although we may turn from God, God never turns from us. We learn this truth in a whole new way in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that Jewish prophet from the line of King David. Like David, Jesus shows us how to live with faithful curiosity and God-dominated imaginations and equips us to move beyond fear into the future God has prepared for us. As uncertain as that future might be, as much as we might fear the changes that future will require of us, what we know for certain is that God will be with us every step of the way. After all, this is the same God who, in the immortal words of God's, of Israel's extraordinarily human king, leads us beside still waters, walks with us through life's darkest valleys, and nourishes us with a heavenly banquet when God brings us home. Amen.